following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Well, good morning. Let's go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 6 this morning together. As you do, I uh, say with so many others, Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. This is our hope. Praise God for his grace to us. Um, welcome to all those that are visiting with us this morning. We're glad that you're either worshiping with us or uh, just spending some time with us this morning. Um, and all those who are home, who are joining us via live stream, we miss you. We desire to have you back as soon as possible. We're praying for you that God will give grace. Uh, and we look forward to the day that we'll be together again. We're excited to see God continually working in us. And this morning is no different. We worship God through the reading and the application of his word. And so as we look to the scriptures, we ask that the Lord would work in us. Let's take a look at Matthew 6, and as we do so, um, before that actually, let me make this statement. Last week I talked about suffering. This week we're going to talk about idolatry here this morning. Um, Next week is Easter, so we'll talk about the resurrection next week. Look forward to that. Um, after that, um, April 11th, Kevin Marshall will be preaching for me and excited about him delivering the word for us. And then April 18th, halfway through April, we're going to start a new series. Last one's Ephesians. We are going to start in the book of Obadiah. That's not a joke. That's really what we're going to do. We're going to go to the prophets, minor prophets, and work through Obadiah together. Um, I would encourage you, uh, if you want to be totally lost, just come on that morning. I'll try to straighten things out. But it's a short book. It's simple. Go take a look. Go read. Figure it out. You're going to have the whole thing, you know, just right there in like one or two pages, depending on what Bible you have. And you'll see it. And we'll be excited about doing that over the next few weeks, starting on April 18th together. We trust that God will use an Old Testament prophet to preach to us the relevancy of trust in God alone. All right, let's look to Matthew 6, verses 19 through 21. I'm going to go ahead and read it for us, and then we'll pray together. Matthew 6, 19 through 21, this is the word of God. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, There your heart will be also. Let's pray together. Christ, we look to you. You are our treasure. We know this morning we come because you have done something in our hearts and lives. There's no other answer but Jesus Christ has died, risen, and he is coming again. We praise you. As we open your word, we ask for your guidance and work in us that we would take your word seriously that we would think about it deeply and that you would change us to be more like Christ. Holy Spirit, soften our hearts. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, fertile soil for the gospel to plant its roots deep in us. May you make us like that tree that's planted by the water that produces much fruit. God, we come now to you and to your word and ask that you would feed us. We thank you for your great grace and we anticipate the work that you will do. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so we started out this little passage here. So I'm going to ask the first question, where does your treasure lie? It's not like a 
strange uh, pseudo-pirate reference, all right? I'm asking you, where does your treasure lie? What do you really want? What are your deepest desires? It's possible that you and I know what we ought to say to that question, and at the same time, it's possible that we don't actually know the answer to that question, what our heart truly desires over all things. I don't know that I'd thought very clearly about this until I read a book and an excerpt from a movie came up from a movie called Stalker. I haven't actually seen the movie, but the lesson revealed really bears repeating here. It's in the midst of this harsh world, uh, very hard times, uh, a group sets off with a, with a man named Stalker, an enigmatic character who promises great things. He leads them to a place called The Zone, wherein they find The Room. I know it sounds very epic. That's kind of the point here. They're going along and they're, they're excited about this and the men have followed him and, and the room is what has drawn them here, what has led them to follow all of Stalker's promises. It is in the room that they achieve their heart's greatest desire. In the room, your dreams come true. In the room, you get exactly what you really want. As the group draws close to the room, Stalker tells the others, this is the most important moment of your life. Your innermost wish will be made true here. It's at this point that the travelers get cold feet, though. Uh, they aren't so sure that this is a good idea anymore. Uh, the, the men hesitate because it dawns in them, what if I don't actually know what I want? I think I might. What if I don't actually know? But as stalkers made plain to them, that's for the room to decide. The room reveals all. What's going to happen here is what you get is not what you think you wish for, but what you most deeply actually wish for. Each one begins to agonize with these questions then. What if I know what I think I want, but I don't actually want that thing? What if the desires I claim are not my innermost longings, my deepest wish? And if the room really gives me all that I truly want, my inner desires, exactly what I wish for, what I wish for, is that actually the right thing? Do I really want my innermost desires to be exposed by getting exactly what my heart longs for the most? They begin to wrestle with the reality that <laughs> it's possible that they could be living for the wrong thing. They could be loving the wrong thing. And so the room gets them to this question, the most important question, what is it that you and I really, really want? Down deep inside, what is our desire? What do we want more than anything else? Today, I want us together to approach the room. I want us to ask these questions, to realize that exposing this question tells all about us. In the words of the Bible, I want us to ask, what do you treasure? What do you love? What do you seek after with all of your being? What kind of glory do you desire for yourself or for this life? Or what kind of treasure could satisfy you? What experiences or relationships could bring you perfect happiness? If someone could really give it to you, if you were to stand in the room and it would be revealed forever, what is it that you want more than anything else? Last week we worked through some heavy stuff. We talked about suffering. We talked about difficulty in the Christian life. 
and I realized that not everyone needed last week's message exactly the same way. Some needed it right away in their time of need. This is helpful. But some of you listened intently and were thankful, and you marked this sermon so you could go back in the midst of difficult times, and you could reference this idea so that we could be built up properly. But for now, things aren't so bad. Things are pretty good. Life is, in a sense, good. We can struggle maybe in the same deep, lasting ways that some of our other brothers and sisters do. And of course, this is something to be thankful for. We're not asking God that he would bring suffering or persecution upon us. But suffering does create a unique platform for dependence on God. When all things are stripped away from us, we cry out to the only one who can truly help us. I mean, faith in God alone becomes necessary, and hoping in him and that he will reward his people in Jesus Christ for eternity seems far more attractive when there aren't any other good options. Why am I saying this? I'm saying this because we need to talk about the other side of the life coin from last week. Last week it was suffering that we dealt with, and rightly so. I can promise you that if you live any length of time as a Christian in this world, you will go through suffering. And this is a potential trap of the wicked one. I mentioned this briefly last week, but in suffering, Satan works to tempt Christians to doubt the goodness of God. It gets to that central question about, is God really good? How can he let all this stuff, terrible stuff, happen? How can sin exist? And Satan puts that out there for us to stumble over. He works to sow seeds of unbelief and treason against our great king. Trials have to be seen then in the light of truth. And that's what we're doing last week, shedding light on the truth. The Christian needs to be prepared to preach the gospel to himself when these times come, because they will come. But there are also times when life is good. Truly, I mean, when, when, when God has shown himself to be strong, when uh, things level out and good times begin to roll again. We see this all throughout the scriptures where God blesses his people and there's true human flourishing abundance and times of feasting, times of happiness and joy. At times like these, we get to experience God's good gifts, and we ought to be thankful for this thing. I think this is probably a description of most of us right now. Maybe not all of us, but most of us right now. At the current moment, we have ready access to delicious, healthy food right around the corner. Uh, most of us live in beautiful homes, or at least rent a place that's nice and presentable and pleasant. Many of us have some sort of family that's living, usually their parents or children or brothers and sisters or something like this. Most of us have a job, if not a good job, health insurance, money in the bank. If we were to describe our lives to our grandparents or our great-grandparents, they would all agree that we are fulfilling the American dream. But there's a reason Jesus told his disciples that it was difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Riches and prosperity and having the good life are not wicked. We know that they're not. But they can be a complete distraction from our desperate need for God. Whether we've got all the things we want or maybe we're still pursuing some of those things, the message is still the same here. The life that we live has some incredible things to offer, common grace things that are just wonderful things that we are right to pursue, they're worth it. They can seem like they satisfy and they, and they help us. They can become our safety and our security. They can bring us joy and happiness and fulfillment. 
They can even serve us in such a way that we get to experience a type of heaven on earth. And in this, they can easily pull us away from our first love, from the pearl of great price. When Jesus is teaching on the Sermon on the Mount here in Matthew 5 through 7, he is giving us perspective of living as a kingdom citizen. He's teaching us to live as those who are subjects of the heavenly kingdom, the one where God is on the throne. All throughout Matthew 5, the Lord is helping us understand that our outward actions do not tell the whole story about who we are. They may have some sort of evidence, but they don't tell the entire thing. He drills down to our motivations and then shows these motivations and the thoughts and our desires are the key to understanding proper living as a kingdom citizen. He exposes the real issue, the heart. And when I say the heart, I'm not talking about the blood pumping organ in, the, in their chest. I'm talking about the seat of our emotions, our mind, and our will, our deepest desirer. In, in, in this section right here, in verse 19 and 20, Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. I mean, Jesus' teaching is actually quite simple here. We, we can understand it right away. Most children understand that he's talking about two different things and two different ways to live here. A Christian should not ultimately be concerned with this earthly kingdom, but with the heavenly kingdom. They should not be focused on securing their physical, temporal items here on earth, but rather on those that matter forever in heaven. His point is made by comparing these things, right? These things that expire to these things that do not expire. The things that do not last compared to the ones that do last. He says that the valuable things in this life can all go away, can all leave us. Material possessions can rot and decay. They can rust and lose all their value quite quickly, actually. He says even here, the animal life can literally feast on our finest clothing and chew holes in our most valuable materials, right? Um, in the very small world of beekeeping, there aren't too many things that are more precious than a built-out honeycomb. Now, I know I just lost half of you, and actually I probably just gained another half of you, so maybe this will work out. Stay with me here. The honeybee puts her babies in these small cells, not in like little cradles somewhere in there. They're not in a big pile in there. Same thing with the honey. It doesn't go in some big vat inside the hive. They create cells, perfectly shaped and formed, so that they can put their babies in there, and that they can hatch out and create a new flock of bees, in a sense. And then they can also put stuff and stores in there as well. Pollen and all this nectar that they make into honey, so they can feed themselves later on. But what they have to do first is build out this honeycomb. They have to have a place to put it. And to let you know, humans can't manufacture it according to the bee's specification. The only way for them to get this honeycomb that they need to use for all of life is for them to build it. And think about this tiny bee that has to make this huge honeycomb. They're doing something that means an enormous amount of energy. It means pollen and nectar. It means they're all working together in this enormous effort and energy to build out comb so they can store their honey and they can raise new brood inside this. Again, a new beekeeper uh, like me supplies a bee with the place that they're, they're trying to keep these things, but I have to allow the bees to actually build out this honeycomb. 
And therefore, since I can't make it instantaneously, and it takes them time and effort, and eventually ends up taking a lot of their resources, it is extremely valuable. These frames full of honeycomb, I, I cannot make, and I have to wait on them to make, are extremely valuable for me. In a sense, they're one of my treasures. They're incredibly helpful. At the end of the season, after they've built out a lot of this good comb, they don't need all of it. They, they swell and they shrink as far as the size of the hive goes. And what we have to do is to kind of make sure they stay in there is reduce that hive and take some of these frames out. Well, they've built all this wonderful honeycomb that we want to make sure we can use when the springtime comes because they're going to need to put new honey in there and they're going to need to put wa uh, new bees in there and, and take care of themselves. Well, when I take those out, this thing to me that is so valuable it is now my treasure, and I must somehow protect this thing. I have to make sure that I can give it back to them in the spring, and it will be useful for them as they try to build up their numbers again. This is a very dangerous process because we always run the risk of having something destroy this perfectly good built-out frame of honeycomb that is in storage. I can understand firsthand what Jesus is saying when he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. Um, the wax moth is an amazing creature. I mean, they can eat through honeycomb like nobody's business. They can make that thing just have holes all like Swiss cheese. It's a mess. They leave refuse through the whole thing. They're, they're leaving their young places, and then they hatch, and they're eating more. And this place is disgusting by the end. No bee is ever going to want to live in there. Instead, they'll just completely abandon that thing. And when I go to look at some of these frames and I pull them out, and I realize that my investment, my treasure, has been completely destroyed by these wax moths. I weep. It's so hard. My treasure has been eaten up, and I understand Jesus' words. So, of course, I try to take several steps to make sure that I can try to keep this from happening. Because, of course, they lay little eggs in there, so I take these things and I wrap them up. And we put them in the freezer to try to kill those larvae so that when we can use it again, it doesn't hatch and they don't go throughout the whole thing. We do all kinds of stuff to try to make this treasure stay around. But Jesus' words are even true for the beekeeper. These things are so easily eaten up, not only by wax moths. We also have a little furry friend, these mice that go through. They, they, they gnaw on everything, not only the wax comb. They'll also eat through wood. They'll bust through these frames and all kinds of stuff. These things are just destroying my treasure. And it's very apparent that this stuff is fleeting and temporal and going away. At the end of the day, our treasure can very easily be consumed. It will not last. But Jesus also mentions the fact that our treasure can be stolen. Perhaps you have some sort of uh, example or illustration in your own life where you've lost something or maybe something has been stolen from you. I can remember uh, where I went to college at Northland. Uh, it was up in northern Wisconsin. I had a pair of CCM hockey skates that I regularly wore. Brought up there my freshman year. I put them in storage in a space that's downstairs. They allowed us to have a little spot where you could store things over the, over the, uh, the semester, the summer semester when you're gone. I remember coming back and it started to get cold again, get ready to get back out on the ice, back on the rink. It was freezing up. I went back down, looked through all my bins, looked through all my bags, looked through this whole storage space and realized that someone had stolen my hockey skates. <laughs> I was very upset, but I realized, again, that something that was valuable to me was so easily taken away from me. I mean, this is the nature of stuff, right? It can so easily waste and decay or just downright be stolen because someone else thinks it's valuable as well. I was quite annoyed. I had lost something that's valuable to me. 
But this is the very nature of stuff, and we understand that here when we really think about this. But in heaven, it's a different story, right? Jesus tells us that. Verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Earthly things, of course, are not inherently wicked, but we see here that they pass away. The things, though, that are built before our eternal king and for him, though, are forever, are eternal. They cannot rust. They cannot be destroyed. They cannot be stolen by thieves. But when we think this through, we also realize that this isn't the only things that we are concerned about with these things on earth. When we think about the whole biblical understanding of stuff here on earth, we realize that these aren't the only things that take away our earthly treasures. You remember the man in Luke 12, 16. I'm going to read this for you. It's going to immediately ring a bell. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. We need to be careful that we understand Jesus' teaching here because he's actually leading us to a certain specific point. There will certainly be rewards in heaven for those who lay up treasures in heaven, who obey Christ, our heavenly king, who sow to the spirit. But Jesus is not ultimately concerned that we have stuff in heaven. That's not the point here. He's not trying to make sure we have cash to spend once we go through the pearly gates. He's concerned that you and I make it through the pearly gates. He's ultimately concerned about our soul. That's what meant here when we see this. Look at verse 21. After saying, uh, don't lay up you know, these expiring treasures here on earth, but rather lay up these lasting ones in heaven, he says this, verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He's not talking about stuff. He's talking about something far more important. He's saying, whatever it is that you love so much, Whatever it is that you treasure, whatever it is that you seek, that's where your heart is. That tells you about who you are. It tells you a great deal. That's where your true loyalty lies. That's where you really, what you really want. And that is what will actually, according to yourself, satisfy you. Death will ultimately reveal what your heart has treasured. I mean, just think about that for a moment. We are all heading, in a sense, to the room, where it will be exposed to us. It will reveal what we really want more than anything else. My question for us today is, have we really considered what's going to happen when we get in the room? What really is going on inside of here? When we may say a certain thing is the thing that we want, but when it reveals what really is at the deepest, most central part of our desires, we're heading for this room. The, parable, the problem is, of course, that if what we treasured most is earthly, then at this point, 
we will realize that we already got it and that that's it. There's no more after this. In a sense, we are fulfilled here on earth. This means that if our treasure can be found here on earth, that we can get it now. And then at death, it will be taken from us forever. It will not last. What is Jesus saying then? What is he getting at here? He is saying that you and I must treasure the right things. Let me go one step further and refine that. He's saying you and I must treasure the right thing. Let me go one step further than that. He's saying you and I must treasure the right one. All else is idolatry. He's showing us what's really going on here. The point here is not about seeking to do a bunch of good works in and of themselves. That's not what he's asking us to do. The point isn't that we ought to be better people. We could represent him better. That's not the point here. The point isn't that we would build heavenly castles either. The point is that we are loyal to the one and one person only, the king of heaven, and that all things flow from him and to him. So Jesus uses these material things that you and I struggle with, earthly concerns that you and I deal with every day to show us who we really serve, where our heart really finds its own satisfaction. Is it God or is it ourselves? Who do we really serve? He uses treasures to show us these inner desires. He shows us how these idols can reveal who our God really is. But the beauty today, friends, brothers and sisters, by grace, we have been given a chance to consider what would happen to us in the room. That's why Jesus is making this point. He is calling us to consider what is deep down inside your heart. What do you want more than anything else? And by his grace, we have a chance to repent of that. If it is anything other than God, if anything at all, He gives us a chance today to see for what it really is, passing away, that it will rot, it will decay, it will die with us. By God's intervening work, we can repent and turn to him as our true joy and treasure. I've been thinking about this, I mean, a lot in the last few weeks. And probably the most foundational text for this morning comes from Exodus 20. Imagine that. From the very first of the Ten Commandments. Let me just read the first three verses. Exodus 20, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. First command, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. If you haven't picked it up by now, this passage is ultimately concerned with the problem of idolatry. This becomes more apparent as you continue on if you read Matthew 6. Let me just read verse 24 to you. No one can serve two masters. No one can do it, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is ultimately about our loyalty, our love, our desire, everything in us. Where does it lay? Are you owned by the master earthly treasures over here? Or are you owned by the master, Jesus Christ, the covenant Lord? Who is your master? Where is your treasure? Brothers and sisters, I I, I preach this sermon today for two reasons. First, I want those who do not claim to be loyal to Jesus Christ to truly consider that there will be a day 
where you will have to give account to him for your deepest heart desires. What will happen to you when you recognize before him that he looks at this and says, what did you want more than anything else? You will face the Almighty and he will judge you. But there is good news. There is mercy and grace for those who will turn their back on earthly treasures, concerns of this world, for the sake of gaining Christ. The gospel is simple but profound, right? Rehearse it again. God is our righteous and benevolent creator, and he owns all things, all creation. That means all of us. We have sinned against him and cannot make it right without paying the ultimate price for our sin, which is death. But the good news is that God gave his son, Jesus Christ, to live righteously and receive our penalty on himself for us on the cross. He beat death and rose victorious over sin and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And by trusting him and him alone, we are reconciled to God. Get this, what I mean this. By treasuring Jesus Christ, we have peace and life and happiness with our creator again. This is mankind's greatest need, to be reconciled to his creator and to receive the greatest treasure of all, the Lord God himself. If you have not trusted Jesus, if you do not treasure him over all things, will you today repent of your sin and trust Jesus to save you? He alone can save. He will not disappoint. He alone is able to fulfill our greatest desires. But I also want to preach this sermon to the rest of us who claim to know and love and trust Jesus Christ. Here we go. As a Christian, I struggle with idolatry. And I know if we're all honest, you struggle with idolatry. One theologian said that our hearts are factories so good at making idols. An idol factory is what our heart is. The problem isn't without. The problem is within. Sometimes it's blatant, right, when we think about idolatry. Sometimes we can see it from a mile away, and we know we ought to get rid of that stuff. But there's other times we don't see it so clearly. Many times we believe that God gives us good gifts so that we could live this life to its fullest and enjoy it for all that it is. And of course, all of us would scoff at the the book title and the idea that you could have your best life now. But how many of us are actually pursuing that? Of course, alongside of Jesus Christ, who helps to make sure we get into that kingdom. How many of us are distracted with pursuing the treasure of this world because our ultimate goal is not to know and please God, but to please ourselves? Our God has made it clear that you shall have no other gods before me. And because none of us have a golden statue at home in our living room that we bow down to, we think we're okay. We think, as long as we don't have these gross sins where we uh, are greedy and idolatrous about certain things that are so blatant, then we must be okay in this system. But we must be very careful to understand the great depths of wickedness in our own hearts. You and I need to realize that we make idols out of everything. What is it that is your treasure? What is it that's your idol? I want you to think about this seriously. Is it family? Is it relationships? Is it friendship? Is it status or respect or some sort of way that you're seen by those around you? Is it career, performance, accomplishments, productivity maybe, 
Getting a bunch of things done. Your record, as it were. Is it pleasure, food, or sex, or entertainment, or sports, or amusement, or hunting, or fishing, or fun? Is it physical abilities? physical beauty, physical fitness, your own self-discipline to make sure you can produce a good product? Is it intelligence or wittiness, your ability to stand out for one reason or another that you are a different type person? What is it that you idolize way down deep? Is it stuff, money, houses, cars, tools, books, gadgets, or anything that you can shop for? Is it vacations, Is it a a life of simplicity and ease? No problems. Life is good. Is it it pleasure? Is it it comfort or a specific lifestyle? Is it control? Is it control of events, of your own schedule, of your surroundings, maybe of your children's destiny and their choices? Is it security, bank account balances, uh, proper insurances, anything that will make sure that we are not harmed in this life. What is it that your heart treasures, that you want more than anything else? And do you notice that all these things are not wicked in and of themselves? All these things are good gifts from the Lord. All these things are things that He created, for goodness sake. All these things are taken to use for our own good and taken as an end in and of themselves. There is no sin in having wealth, no sin in having security, no sin in enjoying relationships and finding pleasure in life, guys. But these things are temporal. Your nest egg or your plan for the future, all the things that you're trying to set up for your retirement one day, they're all going to go away. None of it ultimately matters. Just letting you know because that's what Jesus tells us here. What we have to be concerned with is the eternal, understanding that our true treasure is Christ himself. These things are just gifts. We don't don't need gifts. We need the gift giver, the one who can satisfy us with himself. We often get distracted and sinfully believe that the gift supplies us with all that we really need. But Jesus tells us the truth. John chapter 6, I almost preached this one today, but we get a picture of this problem. And Jesus is going to help us out here because he's patient and kind and loves and pursues his people. He's going to show us. At the beginning of John 6, Jesus feeds 5,000. Remember this? You guys know the story. He provides for their physical need. And after this, people are like, whoa, they're going to seek him out and try to find him and try to get close to him. But it's not for his great teaching. It's not for his divine nature. They're coming to get another free meal. They're coming to see the show. And Jesus points this out to them and explains that they should not seek him as ones who selfishly use Jesus, but ones who realize that God is now giving them true bread. And they don't get it, so they ask this question, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus says this, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have, made, that have seen me and ye yet not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. 
and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should, not lose, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. The, the people don't need more sourdough or more bagels, more flatbread. They need the bread of life. They need Jesus himself, the one who can give them eternal joy and sustenance, who can satisfy their souls forever. I mean, we, we, we need the one who satisfies, not from supplying things that we like, but rather gives us himself. This is the beauty of the gospel, that God has given us Jesus Christ. And as you can imagine, Paul understood this, right? Philippians 3, 7 through 11, Paul says this, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. The thing I want you to see here is that we may gain Christ, that we can have him. Paul compares all things or everything to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord and comes up with a clear answer. There is nothing on earth that compares to Jesus Christ. Living for this world cannot satisfy us, nor can it deliver us eternal joy. But gaining Christ, laying up treasure in heaven, having no other gods before him will yield joy now and for eternity. This is what he calls us to. So I'll ask you, what is your greatest treasure? Let's get back to that idea. What, 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 what do you serve? We need to be asking God to reveal these idols to us. We need to reject them and repent. But there's a more important answer here. This isn't a moralistic, even, even as we do this, we're not just saying stop doing all these bad things, stop doing all these worshiping of idols, stop, 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 stop. Jesus gives us a better way. We sing it sometimes. We look to you. What we need is not to just be better about saying no to idols. You and I need to taste and see that the Lord is good. How do they teach people to figure out counterfeit money? Do you remember? Do anyone know this kind of this little thing, this illustration? They give them a bunch of the real ones so they can spot the one that is not true. When we look to the real one, all the rest just crumble. They're nothing. They're temporal. They fail. They aren't even compared to him good. They're just gifts. They're things that can crumble, crumble and go away. The most important thing that you and I can do is look to Christ, to taste and see that he is good, to listen to the word of God regularly and believe that it is true, to bind his words on the doorposts and keep them in front of our eyes, to fellowship with the saints here that are telling us the truth about our existence. This is for our good, to grow us in Christ, to remind us that we together serve an all-powerful, benevolent king. Look to Christ's word, believe the truth, and of course pray for a heart that longs for God and worships him, the true bread of life. Let me close with just one more statement about treasure. We have to answer this question, guys. We, we have to understand this. We have to go back to the room and understand what's deeply entrenched in our hearts, what we want more than anything else. 
Let me read a statement that some of you may be familiar with. In the book, God is the Gospel, John Piper asks a very important question. It's one that haunts me every single time that I read it and causes me to throw myself at the mercy of God and pray for a heart that loves Him, the right thing. He says this, The critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw and all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? Does it not lay open our hearts and show us what we want more than anything else? What do you treasure? I pray and for, our, for us that God would purge the idolatry that so easily creeps into our hearts and that he would cause us by his grace to see him for who he is and that we would love him supremely. Let's pray together. Dear God, you are the supreme treasure. But we see so many things around us. We hear so many things around us. This world looks so good. So many things that seem to offer satisfaction, comfort, joy, security. Satisfaction we, we know, though, can never last here in this life. We realize that all these different things, and some of us have tasted them and realized that they are wormwood. They will fall apart. They will rot and decay. But Lord, we're so easily pulled back. I, I pray that you would please strike our hearts with a vision of who you are, the great one, the satisfying bread of life. Lord, you promise us that if we will taste of you, we will see that you are good and that we will never thirst again. Lord, would you satisfy us with yourself and teach us to know you and to proclaim you to others. Lord, we ask for your help and we look to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.